Hello, and welcome to our second episode of the VIEW podcast, our podcast series on leaders in retail. I'm Julia Dietmar, the Chief Product Officer of VIEW.ai, and your host for today. If you tuned into our first episode, you might have listened to our chat about the massive changes in the retail industry, something that's got everyone talking, especially in the AI personalization aspect of retail, is Stitch Fix. The company started off strong this year with their IPO, but in the last two weeks, there's been news about their stock tumbling by 20%. This happened when Amazon began testing Scout, a personalized shopping recommendation service that is currently focused on home design. What is it about personalization that influences the way people shop today? It's interesting to see brands personalize at different levels, whether it's through culture, body type, social context, technology, or through experience. Let's continue to talk about this evolving industry and how it impacts competition and market with our today's guest. We're very excited to welcome Judy Shea, former Senior Vice President of Digital Product and Marketing at Nastigal. With over 15 years of experience in leading end-to-end digital and growth for e-commerce and lifestyle brands, Judy has been responsible for scaling several high-growth startups across the United States. Thank you so much for joining us today, Judy. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, You've been working in e-commerce and retail for a while now, but if I remember correctly, when you and I met at Yahoo those years ago, you were at Yahoo Finance, right? How did you switch to e-commerce? Was this by design? Well, the early phase of my career was actually spent in personal finance. I think when we met, I was leading product at Yahoo Finance and you were leading the platform team. I remember when I first got to know you, I thought to myself, wow, this woman is pretty badass. You know, a former engineer, (laughs) a PM leading platforms, the most technical and challenging team at Yahoo, and a mom with a little boy. That was more than 10 years ago when there weren't even that many women in tech and leadership positions. Yeah, those were fun days for sure. Well, thank you for your kind words. But let's come back to you. How did you end up in e-commerce? Well, my entry into e-commerce was serendipitous. I had left Yahoo because I wanted to work at a startup. I've always enjoyed building consumer products, services online in an agile environment. I was introduced to Brett Markinson, one of the co-founders of Potluck. Shortly after he and his co-founders sold the online flash sale business to Nordstrom for about $270 million, I think. It was one of the first, if not the first, e-commerce business Nordstrom ever acquired. Right before the transaction, Hotlook had internally incubated Soul Society, a direct-to-consumer brand in shoes and accessories. Brett reached an agreement with Nordstrom to spin off Soul Society since the business is very different from Hotlook's main flash sale model. Bray is a serial entrepreneur. He impressed me. Here's a guy who could have taken some time off after his newfound wealth, but he chose to jump right back in with a super early venture. I found that I like e-commerce a lot because to be successful, you need to balance the art and science and the results of your efforts are very immediate. But I found that passion for the category later. In this case, I got into e-commerce because of Brett, the founder. Throughout my career, I've worked at a lot of startups. When I consider startups, it's really the founder that matters more than anything else. 
I suppose that approach is not all that different from how VCs evaluate startups. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so then eventually you ended up at Nastigal, which is one of the first cult brands that started online. How did that come about? Where I'm assuming you were impressed with Sophia. <laughs> well, I was approached about a leadership position at Nastigal a couple of times. I remember checking out the site they had at the time. It was honestly kind of janky, and I thought it didn't look very interesting, actually. However, after I learned about Sophia, the founder's unconventional background, and saw the emotional connection she was able to cultivate with her users on Instagram, I really wanted to meet her. Not so much for the job, but I was just really curious about her as a person a young entrepreneur with a really unique approach and point of view. This was before she became kind of famous in the e-commerce world. I think through Nasty Gal, she unintentionally started the Girl Boss movement even before she published her first book and before she officially started the Girl Boss, the media company we know today. Yeah, definitely Sophia Amoruso and Nasty Gal have been quite influential. Um, why do you think people are so fascinated by them? Well, through Nastigal, Sophia created a space for young women who felt that they were different from the mainstream type that most brands were speaking to. Instead of feeling a little weird about their own identity or style, these young women felt that they could celebrate their uniqueness through the brand, and that's very empowering and liberating. As you pointed out in the beginning of the conversation, brands and retailers, they have the opportunity to personalize at different levels. Nastigal isn't for everyone, honestly. I guess you can say that the brand has always felt personalized for its customers, mainly through culture, social context, and style expression. Uh, did you yourself also identify with Nastigal as a brand? Did you buy their <laughs> clothes? <laughs> I think I became acclimated to the edgy style <laughs> and I definitely adopted the badass attitude over time. <laughs> well, you're definitely uh, one of the better fashionistas I know. Uh, <laughs> so um, as you know, Judy, with um, um, this advent of technology and, and um, what we're seeing happening in the industry today, Fashion brands are actively trying to drive innovation to give shoppers um, unique experiences. What do you see in the industry? What are you observing? Are brands and e-tailers actively experimenting with AI and other new tech? Where does it go in the next few years, in your opinion? Yeah, we started experimenting with AI via a partner to improve our search results in Nastigal about two years ago. And we saw really promising results. Over the last couple of years, AI has been probably the most popular buzzword at all the retail conferences, right? Yeah. As AI technology improves, wider adoption is just inevitable. When I was in Astigal, we had three site merchandisers who manually merchandised top categories seven, several times a week. AI and computer vision could have certainly made that go a lot faster. Over time, I think the nature of site merchandisers' job will simply evolve so that they focus more on training the machine and perhaps divert more time to fashion storytelling, which is more fun anyway, right? Yeah. Another obvious opportunity is using AI to learn preferences faster so that shoppers no longer have to plow through pages and pages of merchandise online. 
I mean, that's being the advantage as well as the problem with online shopping, right? I mean, endless options because online you just never run out of shelf space. Online shopping sometimes becomes so time consuming and exhausting and AI really could solve that challenge very well. Judy, there is a trend of online pure place opening physical locations. Why do you think that's happening? You know, it's really interesting. It seems like a really popular topic these days. Um, and I've always wondered why people find it so surprising, actually. Do you think maybe there's a set of underlying assumption behind this question, actually? Yeah, uh, we're probably seeing uh, the trend going back to store, uh, customers going back to stores because they appreciate um, the physical touch and physical uh, interaction with the product. And retailers who are online only or started online slowly realizing that. Yeah, I think so. I guess the way I think about it is slightly different, right? A lot of brands started online because it's less risky and it's less expensive, right, to start a business online. Costs are lower. Um, there's lower upfront cost. You just need a laptop, basically, right? Right. You can set up an online store on Amazon, on eBay, or Shopify literally in days, right? And then the product market fit, the learning is so much faster online. And I'm talking about learning about how your early adopters are and who your most valuable customers are. And so in general, it's just easier and more cost efficient to start businesses online. But I don't think any of these entrepreneurs would ever say, oh, I'm starting a business online and this is the only place where I'll ever be, right? It's pretty universal and the right answer is I want to be wherever my customers are and I want to find ways to emotionally connect with my customers, whether it's online or offline. And I want my customers to be able to touch my products. I want to be able to meet my customers in person to understand who they are. So this is exactly what you said. So I think what these online brands have found is that, well, we've already understood our customers pretty well online. So offline is simply a natural extension um, going to the real world. Actually, even before Nasigal opened our first brick and mortar store on Melrose, um, the brand had already dabbled in print publishing. And so I think that sentiment has been always very consistent. How do we connect with our customers in more ways um, than just online? Got it. Um, that totally makes sense. Um, another question that I have for you is um, about social media. How do you think the role of social media is evolving uh, in determining brand presence? Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, successes of um, some brands being attributed to social media. So what, what role do you think social media plays? It's funny because 10, 15 years ago, if a brand was really good on social, you'd be like, wow, they're social maven. That was amazing. But today, as a successful brand, being really great on social is basically table stake, right? It's almost like, hey, you know, if you're a journalist, of course, you need to be able to communicate really well. It's basically, you know, part of the core competencies that you need to, uh, you need to establish. Um, I guess the other thing that's evolved is because in the past, um, 10, 15 years ago, for an 
for a brand to really express who they are, their identity to their customers, the only ways would be through their packaging communication, packaging design, or you would have to spend millions of dollars advertising in print or on TV in order to get across to your customers who the brand is. But today is very different with social media. Um, I think brands can more effectively establish that identity and communicate to their customers who they are much more effectively. Also, with social, brands are now forced to raise a bar in so many different ways in terms of being a lot more transparent with their customers. Uh, they're forced to respond and serve their customers much quicker, right? And part of it is just, you know, how the technology has advanced. For example, on Facebook or on Yelp, oftentimes, you know, you'll hear, you'll, you'll see this little label saying, hey, this business will respond to you within hours or within days. Or if you're texting somebody, you can sort of see, oh, a message has been read or someone's typing. And so inherently, all these things just force the brand to react much faster and um, be in a place where they need to interact with customers more effectively. Right. Speaking of raising the bar on social, what, what do you think about um, uh, this new breed of social influences that just kind of started popping up everywhere? Um, and I mean AI influencers. So those artificial, um, they're not necessarily artificial intelligence, but those kind of um, artificially made influencers we've heard of Shudu and little <laughs> Michaela. What do you think of those? Is that a so, fad? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because I think it's so interesting. Uh, the that's really that's really underscoring the way brands have changed over time, right? In the past, as a brand, basically you're a logo, uh, you represent a set of products, but today anybody or anything, <laughs> as you pointed out, could become a brand. An influencer, say Ami Song Style, she became a brand because she represents something um, through her style, through how she interacts with her customers. And so um, I, I don't know who started this trend, but the fact that now we have all these, um, I guess, AI, these, these influencers um, created online via AI, that seemed to be a, almost, a, it's kind of scary to say, but it's almost like a natural progression because now truly anything, anybody could be a brand. <laughs> well, and with that, uh, is there a risk of oversaturation in influencers? We're already kind of seeing the value of influencers maybe going down uh, a little bit. Uh, is There's a lot of content out there. So if 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 I am... Um, a Gen Z or a millennial who is following influencers, how do I know who to follow? There's so many of them these days. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I'm actually hearing from my colleagues in the, in the industry more that people are now, brands are now gravitating towards micro-influencers versus the mega-influencers, right? Because the mega-influencers, they're now charging a lot of money for a post versus the micro-influencers, even though they have a smaller audience, but they have much higher engagement, their relationship with their, their followers tend to be a lot more genuine. And so I almost think of this as being very similar to the involvement of cable and online shows, 
I think as long as you have a unique point of view, you have a unique voice, um, you can always find a new set of customers that will be, be, be very loyal to you. Totally agree with you on that. So that's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Judy. Your take on Nasty Gal's growth, the new brand and retail strategy, and your view on experimenting with new tech was very insightful. We were thrilled to have you on the VIEW podcast. As we continue to see changes in retail, we're going to bring you interviews with various players of the retail value chain, heads of product, heads of innovation, CEOs, CTOs, founders, and investors to understand the way the industry is shaping up, what's still working for brands, and technology trends that are making waves in, in retail. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Judy Shea. Stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>